Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So our habits and our genetics influence the way we perceive reality so that the way we experience sensation is very much determined by our body and the history of our body and our ancestors, right? So for example, I can sit here on this cushion and I can cross my legs or I can sit in half lotus, all of these things because my hip joints are open and I work with them every day. Um, However, a big portion of that is my genetics. If you travel a little bit in Asian cultures, um, when they wake up in the morning, they were sleeping on the floor, and then they squat like this to go to the bathroom, right? And then when they work, they work like this. When they eat, they eat like this. So look what their hip, their hip joints are closed, their knee joints are closed, lumbar spine can be an extension or flexion, abdominal wall works properly, right? All from being on the ground. Maybe they uh, urinate and defecate like this. They wait for the bus like this, mm -hmm. right? On the ground. In our culture, we get out of a bed that's way up here. Can I demonstrate here? We get out of bed. We sit down to go to the bathroom like this, right? We drive. We sit on the bus. Are my knee joints closed? Are my hip joints closed, right? And then we work all day like this. So then you come to sit on the ground and like there's no way your knee joints and your hip joints are gonna do that, right? Because a combination of genetics and culture and how you reinforce the mobility of your body. So that's all samskaras. And that's gonna influence sensation. So psychologically and physiologically, sensations give rise to feelings. Feelings give rise to patterns of attachment and aversion. And one of the basic ideas of having a relationship to a daily practice is that within your daily practice, your patterns of attachment and aversion are going to show up. And they're the same patterns of attachment and aversion that show up in all of your relationships, but they show up on your cushion, on your sticky mat. And then now you have a space and you're learning tools to start to work with those patterns of attachment and aversion. 
When there's attachment and aversion, it then gives rise to what? <coughs> Reaction. How so? You respond. You respond? What else? Yeah? It becomes a samskara. It becomes a samskara, yeah. Yeah. Yesterday you said craving. Craving? Okay. So uh, if we don't respond to those properly, it will create. Right. It's a little bit what, what Doug was getting at, that in a way, attachment and aversion are both craving. They're both, you can call them both clinging. Um, let's give an example. I'm sitting down, just because I'm using the knees as an example. Sit down, sitting down here. And then, after a while, if I don't have the alignment right, there's pain here. Has anyone had this experience? There's some pain here in the joint. Okay, so joint is influenced by habit. It's perceived, sensation, feeling is negative. Then what happens? Pardon me? You try to get away from the pain. Take me into the scene. Um, well, you just recognize that there's pain in the Pain in the knee, back off, aversion. Movement. Movement. How long do we sit here? <laughs> yeah, let's act it out a little bit. What do you say? Story. Let's hear it. What's the story? My knee hurts. My knee hurts. Oh my gosh, I do too much yoga. Oh my gosh, I do too much yoga. <laughs> when is this going to be over? When is this going to be over? <clears throat> when is she going to ring the bell? <clears throat> Maybe I should stay and work with it. Maybe I should stay and work with it. I need to do more yoga. I need to do more yoga. Yeah, so I, I've had ones where it's like, I'm sure I have cancer <laughs> of the knee. knee and it's like a rare knee cancer. And I'm going to die. <laughs> and I, I can't believe that the timekeeper is not paying attention to the time. Because like, I am going to die. Has anyone had something similar to that? Yeah, I'm going to die. Um, the experience I like, I like to tell is uh, the first time I ever went to Vienna, uh, I, I've taught several times in Vienna, and the first time I taught there, I took a flight there from Germany, I think, and uh, when I got there, they put me up in this really small apartment. And so I came into the apartment, and whenever I go somewhere when I travel, the first thing I always do is I get my cushion out or find a pillow, and I just sit down. So uh, I got my things together, put my luggage away, sat down, closed my eyes, started following my inhale and exhale. And then I started to feel really, really hot, really hot all over my chest, in my forehead, my armpits. And then I had a memory to the samskara, had a memory of the person next to me on the airplane who was sneezing and coughing the whole time. And then I remember one time us both going to the washroom at the same time. They went in first. And when I went in after them, there was like scrunched up Kleenex all over the bathroom. And I was so angry. I thought, I've gotten a cold. No, it's not a cold. This is going to be a really strange flu. And then I foresaw myself in the apartment, sick in bed the whole weekend, missing out on my first 
workshop in Vienna. And nobody could teach for me. This would have an impact to the community and my family. And then I started to feel like, why do they let ill people on planes? They should have some kind of you know, thing that you walk through, like to check if you have firearms or whatever, to see if you have a cold or something that someone beside you should catch. And why is this taking so long? Because actually, most people probably get sick just from being on airplanes. And this went on and on and on and on and on. Then my little timer uh, rang. And when I opened my eyes, I noticed beside the door that when I came in, I turned the heat on all the way. And it was a heated floor in the room. So the room was so hot. And then I realized, oh, I'm not sick. It was just that I had turned the heat on all the way. And so for 30 minutes, I had just made this whole story up about this flu I had. But actually, I was completely fine. And the person beside me was actually really kind and really nice. And it might not even be them who left all the Kleenex. It could have been the person before them. Maybe they walked in to the bathroom and thought, who left all this Kleenex here? <laughs> and maybe since I didn't clean it up, the person who came in after me thought, that guy, I mean, he had malas, I thought he was a Buddhist or something, but he left Kleenex everywhere. So all of this kind of uh, is really creating a, a prison for ourselves, narrowing our experience. So, Attachment and aversion, clinging and craving, gives rise to something called ahamkara. Um, aham is I. Kara means to make is to make. So most of the time translators call this the ego. Okay. But actually in Western psychology, the ego by definition in a Freudian sense is what mediates between conscious and unconscious, uh, interior and exterior. But that's not really what's meant by ahankara. And unfortunately, it gets translated as the ego, but it's more subtle than that, or I would say more sophisticated than that. Ahankara literally means the I-maker. So it's the mechanism in our personality that superimposes on our experience a sense of me. The I-maker. Isn't that a nice term? the I-maker, or mamamkara, the me-maker. So there's pain in the knee. When there was aversion, what changed? What changed? There's pain in the knee, there's aversion, and then in the examples you gave, what had changed? The, uh, the pain in the knee caused the person to view the knee as something separate from themselves. Right. So the language changed to my me. And now there's an object and there's a sense of self. So before there's pain and right there in a split second spring loaded in the aversion to the pain, there is created an I. Can you see that? 
So you could say the creation of the I is a linguistic addition to the sensory experience when there is attachment or aversion present. It's kind of interesting. So the ahamkara gives rise to what's called asmita. Asmita is the story of I, me, and mine. So because there is now a sense of self, the sense of self then operates as a story. What happens when something is born? You're born. What happens when you're born? What happens next? It's kind of obvious. In a more general sense. Circumcision? No, of course. <laughs> that happens too. But they cut the cord? Yeah. I mean in a more general sense in the life cycle. There's birth and before death. Maturity. It's the thing nobody likes talking about. It's called aging. And then what happens? Death. Okay. So, when the eye maker is born, there is a birth. During the story, there is the process of aging. What happens after aging? What happens before death? Illness. Maturation. Disintegration. Decay. What happens on the way to death? Aging. What about aging? Disintegration. What happens when you contemplate death? Aversion. Aversion? Fear. Fear. So, when there is birth, and aging, on the way to death, there is also fear. And this is called Abhinivesha, which is usually translated as the fear of death. When you contemplate death and you really meditate on the fact that your body is going to be eaten by worms or that um, it's going to be burned, fear probably doesn't arise. Fear arises in relation to the fact that the story of me, the sense of me, I don't know what's going to happen to it. You see? So it's not so much that Abhinivesha is the fear of death, but it's actually the fear of the death of the story of me. 
right? It's a fear of letting go. If anybody here has ever spent time with somebody who's dying, who didn't want to die, has anyone here ever had this experience? You're with a family member who's dying and they don't want to die. They're fighting with people or they have a lot of resentment. You've probably experienced this a lot of nursing. Mm -hmm. They can't let go. Uh, it's such a good lesson to see that your body is going to let go, that everybody is going to let go at the moment of death. But sometimes there's so much contraction around the story of me, the story of my life, and so much fear that we can't let go. And this is why Shavasana is such an important practice that we do every day. We lie down, we let go into gravity, we let our breath come and go, and we literally practice giving away our breath, giving away our body, giving away the earthiness of the body, earthiness of the bones and muscles uh, back to the earth, giving the breath away back to the wind, giving the heat in our body away back to the element of fire. In other words, death is, is considered in the yoga tradition as a practice of generosity. That when you die, you're giving it all away. But it's natural when there's clinging to a story or a sense of self that we have fear of letting go. One of my teachers, Richard Freeman, translates Abhinivesha in an interesting way. He calls it the fear of intimacy. Which I think is really telling because it, 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 taking out the word death allows you to temporalize the teaching. So it's not so much a fear of like a final death, but fear right now of letting go of a sense of a separate self. Because in a way, what we all crave most is deep intimacy. A real connection with the whole of our lives. And we're also organized to do anything we can to sabotage it. Because of Abhinivesha, the fear of letting go of these old stories of me and mine that are obstacles to a deeper connection with the way things really are. That's why relationship is so hard. Who wants to be in a relationship? Relationship is so hard because it's always screwing up your ideas about how things are. Because nobody wants to be your theory. Doug? Uh, what's coming up for me as you talk is the idea of control. Uh -huh. And it's, it's almost, it sounds like I, I now understand more clearly why people talk about control. They use the language of control and planning yeah. for exactly the reasons you're just giving. Yeah. Is, there, is there a relationship? Absolutely. So how do we control things? We create rigid and fixed ideas. So, can we keep going? Yeah? I know we've, we're covering a lot today, but... My hope is to complete the circle. Um, but maybe I have to let go of that. 
Um, so Abhinivesha is the fear of letting go of the story of I, me, and mine. Some of you might know, because I, I, I like teaching it a lot, is one of the Buddha's first sermons where he talks about his awakening. And he says, what I've woken up to is difficult to see, it's subtle, it's excellent. And then he says, but it's hard to see because people love, delight, and revel in their viewpoint. And then he says, people who love, delight, and revel in their viewpoint can't see this. He actually says, can't see the ground. Can't see the way things are. Because we love, I love that term. They love, delight, and revel in their viewpoint. So, Abhinivesha, the fear of letting go of your perspective. Gives rise to avidya. In Greek, when you have an a before a word, it turns the word into its opposite. Here, it's slightly more psychological. Avidya, vidya means to see. Actually, the word vidya is where you get the Latin word video which is where you get the English word video. Ah, vidya, it's not so much not seeing, it means not having the intention to see. Just like ahimsa means not having the intention to cause harm or violence. Avidya could be translated as not wanting to see. And seeing here is a metaphor, right? It could be seeing, feeling, not wanting to feel your way into something, or not wanting to be with something. Because if you can't let go of your story about what you're experiencing, you can't be with it. You get avidya, you get not seeing clearly. Jesse? As this cycle is going on, is this where the <coughs> getting rigid? Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So if when, when you were sitting in Vienna, your tongue was rigid. Yeah, this is a model of rigidity. Yeah. And depending on the momentum of the sensations, yeah. you could catch the tongue. Yes. And then forget about catching the tongue. Right? Yeah, so now you're getting into Caitlin territory again. Sorry. Which is, uh, how do we be free of this? But we're, still <laughs> we're still in the Dukkha realm. Okay. Basically, life is hard, and there. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, if I know that to start a really good cult, you're supposed to say life is great. We're all going to be happy, and we're all going to have an exit plan you know, together. 
Um, <laughs> but actually, life is really hard. And part of the reason why things can get so hard is because we're constantly negotiating all of what's coming in through the world and how it meets our predispositions. And a lot of our predispositions we don't have control over. So there's a lot of learning to do in a way, or unlearning, you could say. Avidya means not being with things as they are, as they happen. It's not intimacy. And avidya gives rise to the last part of our circle. Does anybody know what it might be? What's between not seeing things as they are and a samskara? Repetition or reaction? Trauma. is still back here. Karma. Yeah. Karma. Karma comes from the root kud, which is where you get the English word create. Comes from this word. Um, so I translate the word karma as creativity because it means there are conditions and what are you going to do with those conditions it's a bit of a poetic stretch but karma just means that whenever there is an action there is an effect and it's often mistranslated partly because of John Lennon instant karma is going to get you as fate but the word for fate is vipaka, not karma. Karma just means whenever there's an action, there's an effect. In the Bhagavad Gita, it says whenever there's fire, there's smoke. Sometimes the effect is immediate. Like right now, if I say something rude to Wyatt, then he's going to come punch me. Okay? But sometimes... <coughs> I hope I haven't said anything rude. But sometimes uh, the effect is delayed like when you have four children, <laughs> right? Who knows what it's going to be, two children. Um, so, because there's a fear of letting go of the story we have, we can't see things as they are, and then we take an action based on this, and that action reinforces, or you could say the non-action, not doing something. Also, reworks the samskaras and contributes to those grooves, to those rivers that then influence within our sense organs and mind how we perceive, how we move, how we think, how we act, how we understand, how we relate, are all influenced by previous actions. So this is a model of habit 
This is a model of going around in circles. And you could say that this is also a model of craving and addiction. Because at bottom, every addiction, even if it has a physiological or genetic basis, is an addiction to a narrative. And in a way, all of us are addicted to certain narratives. We have enemies. And in order to have an enemy, in order to have a nemesis, you have to have a story about them. And it actually takes a lot of energy to keep a story going about an enemy or about a nemesis. But maybe the story we have going about our enemy can be seen, especially through this model, as just another attempt to create a sense of self. Maybe the story of our enemies has nothing to do with the enemies at all, and is really just about us maintaining a sense of self. After September 9-11, when there was the violent action of planes flying into the World Trade Centers and killing so many people, Jean Chrétien came on the news and had a press conference. And do you remember this? Does anybody remember this? And he said, why are so many people angry at us? And if we're going to really deal with this act of violence, maybe we need to ask ourselves why those people are so angry and how we're contributing to it. And people were so shocked that he said this that the American government asked him to apologize. Susan Sontag wrote an article about this and she never had another piece published until her death. Because at times of war, we, through this path, so you can see this in a social way, right? A nation at times of war has a very, very strong identity. And there's lots of fantastic research, especially if you look at Chris Hedges' wonderful book about war that he wrote as a journalist. Um, uh, something like Why We Love War, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, How War Gives Our Life Meaning, where he looked at soldiers and he explored how soldiers going to war describe having the most meaning they've ever felt in their life. Why? Because we're sure about our story. We're right. That's the enemy. I know the enemy. It's black and white. And that gives us a false sense of security. And there's a tremendous fear in letting go of our story, of us and them. And then our story of us and them creates not seeing clearly which then creates action, which leads to war. So this is as much an individual psychological model as it is a penetrating analysis of how nations hold on to their identity. And you could plug any addiction in here. Oil. the belief that we need more and more capital, our ideas about our relationship with our environment, 
we have stories in our culture that we're repeating again and again and again. We know at some level they're unsustainable, but we won't let them go, we're scared. But what is it underneath that fear that we have such aversion to? Well, it's probably something over here. Because our culture is so scared to die. But unless our culture can learn how to really look at death and how to let go of its stories, uh, there's no hope for getting out of this cycle of repetition and compulsion. So I'll leave you on that bitter note. (laughs) And maybe we can have a break here. And then uh, we'll continue. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.